Well, welcome everybody again to City Life this fine Saturday evening. It's possibly the most dramatic announcement ever made for the men's retreat. I was wa- I watched those in the morning just to know what's going to be in the video. And I was just like, what is this? Is there a hurricane coming? That was last year. But uh, no, the men's retreat is going down this year, rain or shine, apparently. We're just going to put it through and we're going to go. But uh, it's funny because the governance team is back tonight. It's good to see all your faces. Good to see some of our visitors. But the Nowatneys and the Kearneys are here and they went on vacation to Mexico. So it's great to have them back. Uh, there was what a tropical storm right before y'all went down where they, I, I was in the garage with Nate and he was like, this is the worst ever. Like it could rain every day we're here. But God showed them favor. They've been serving faithfully not only at this campus, but in Newport News for the better part of a decade. So it's good to have them back. Just remember that the altar call last week was basically all of us swearing an oath not to talk about the reckless things we did when they were away. So, uh, but they brought me this as well, which is fitting as football season is around the corner. A tribal wood-carved mask, which I thought would look good up here with all the, the wood carvings up here. Brick is ready to light that on fire because he's a Dallas fan. But <laughs> football's around the corner, ladies and gentlemen. But it's good to have the governance team back. Speaking of which, the campus directors team, we had a meeting on Thursday. And one of the daughters was there who I I swore she would be anonymous when I talked about it. So I'm not going to give her name, but we were talking and and she was sharing about how something was going on. And she knew if she went to her mom or her dad, she might get different answers. One of them gives an easy yes. The other she knew would probably give a no. You're smiling because, you know, when you were younger, you had that dialed in. You knew which parent to go at what time of day to get the yes that you needed. I mean, that's one of my first life skills is, is learning how to do that. And it's carried over into marriage. I know when to not bring things up with Steph and when to bring things up with Steph. Like when she wakes up from a long nap or she's just been well fed, that's when I go with the questions. She's worn out or distracted. No, I don't ask. But I don't know which parent I'll be, the, the yes man or, or, the, or the firm no. I feel like you're in leadership long enough. You learn to just give firm no's. The velvet brick, right? You're firm, but you're soft when you say it. So I might drop a lot of no's, and I'd imagine Steph will say yes for the first years that we have Titus. But I've never parented a child. But I have taken a a lot of classes and read a lot of books as four years of the adoption process has worked through. And then in, in a decade of youth ministry, I saw different styles of parenting and the way it affected the students. It affected the adolescents. And I saw it firsthand again and again and again. And one style of parenting I saw was what you might call permissive, the permissive parent. And this is the parent that operates under the assumption that your kid wants a best friend, right? That you'll be Timon and Pumbaa, no worries for the rest of your days. If you just tell them yes whenever they need something, they assume that their child always would prefer the answer yes. But psychiatrists, psychologists have have shown that in reality, deep down, psychologically, they need you to say no. If you don't say no, it can be damaging. They feel loved, but they also feel unsure and insecure. It's like driving on a, a, a narrow bridge with no guardrails. Or, or for instance, in, in a progressive education movement, in the progressive education movement, there was once somebody who was very enthusiastic and said, we should take the fences from around the playground. So just the kids can go wild, they'll run wild, they'll be more free if we just take the fences down. And then they found that the opposite happened, that they removed the fences around the playground and all the kids, they huddled up together because they felt unsafe and they felt insecure. We've talked about it before that boundaries are a blessing because what you prize, you'll protect. Our children are a blessing. It says so in the book of Psalms and when they feel protected, they know that they're prized and deep down they appreciate it. So then 
You might swing the pendulum the other way. Too far the other direction, maybe, where you get the authoritarian parent. The parent that rules with an iron fist, says no repeatedly, never gives an inch, and ultimately they're a boss with no connection, no relationship. And, and the, the child might feel safe, might feel protect, protected, but without relationship often they rebel. And it's interesting. I start with this because tonight we're talking about prayer. And when Jesus taught us how to pray, he had us refer to God as our father. And how we picture God will affect how we pray. But the Bible paints what seems to be two very different portraits of the character of God. For instance, in, in the short book of James, a book that's right after Hebrews, it's so small sometimes it gets lost in our New Testament. But in the short book of James, he says to the church two different things. In James 1.17, he talks about how God is the giver of all good gifts and how God never changes or casts a shifting shadow. And this simply echoes what we read again and again in the Old Testament and we'll look at in a moment where it says God doesn't change. God is unchanging. He's sovereign. It seems like he's the parent that doesn't give an inch. But then you get to James chapter 5.16 and, and James says this, that the prayer of the righteous man is powerful and it's effective. It's powerful and effective. It seems that God is the parent that hears and responds. And it encourages us. Because when I pray, I want, I want a God that I know hears me and will respond when I pray. Anybody else in the boat with me? But you know what? Let me tell you, I don't want a permissive God that simply plays the role of genie. When every time I ask for something, he says yes. I don't want a God that needs to be shown a, a more excellent way when I pray. That needs some kind of guidance counselor that can redirect his decision-making, especially if it's me with my qualifications. I don't want that. I don't want a God who is impulsive or imperfect that needs to be redirected by prayer. Ultimately, we want a God that's big enough for both, a dependable God we can count on, but also a God who is moved by our prayers. And the question, as I've been studying this all week and just as I've been looking at this text, is logically, if, if God can't change, then how can our prayer change God? How can God's sovereignty be reconciled to effective prayer in the pages of the Bible where it seems like he changes his mind? Sometimes it says it, he changes his mind. And maybe you're one who is able to pray with childlike faith and you never have any questions or doubt and you just flow right through it. But maybe you're like me and these questions have challenged you. Maybe questions have paralyzed your prayer life. You know, what you conclude will either cause you to view prayer as valuable in its utility or ultimately futile. Eugene Peterson once said, we are reluctant to do anything if its practical usefulness cannot be demonstrated. We are reluctant to do anything if its practical usefulness cannot be demonstrated. And even among those who do pray, those who call themselves followers of Christ, this question of sovereignty and prayer and the effectiveness of prayer, it sparks some of the greatest divides in Christian theology. And if you're expecting me tonight to solve all those debates and just drop the mic and walk off the stage. I'm sorry, it's not going to happen. But I, I can't tell and answer all the questions because I don't have all the answers. You know when a series called Big Enough for Both. But sometimes God is simply big. <laughs> I've studied more for this sermon than I have for any of the others in this series, and I feel like I have less answers. But in our series, Big Enough for Both, we've been talking about how what is seemingly contradictory can actually operate in complementary ways as we follow Christ. Right, seemingly contradictory. What am I talking about? Grace or truth? In our broken culture, should we, should we dispense grace or champion truth? And the reality is 
We're called to do both. In one hand, walk with grace. In the other hand, walk with truth. We've talked about are we set apart or are we sent? But God's big enough for both. Set apart isn't about geography. It's about the condition of our heart. And then we've also talked about July 4th weekend. We talked about uh, does religion free us or restrict us? We talked about how God's big enough for both, both freedom and boundaries. You know, tonight we got to drive to Williamsburg, and if I hit a guardrail, I'd realize those boundaries are a blessing. You know, if you went home tonight and you drove at 150 miles per hour naked, then you would realize that sometimes free acts can restrict you when you get pulled over, right? Sometimes those things that you do freely, they can result in being restricted. Again, sometimes God, though, is simply big. Big enough that sometimes I have to trust what is theological, what is logical with God in the equation, that theo meaning God. Trust that what is theological is superior to my limited logic. Sometimes I have to trust the God that says in Isaiah 55, my thoughts are nothing like your thoughts. And my ways are far beyond anything you could imagine. For just as the heavens are higher than the earth, so my ways are higher than your ways and my thoughts higher than your thoughts. You know, in this series, we've talked a lot about light. This whole series kind of jumped off from 1 John 1 where it says God is light and there's no darkness in him. He's perfect in his ways. But we've also talked about how that that passage talks about walking in the light. And light also has its complexities. And following God and and, and following him also has its complexities. Sometimes these contradictory things are actually complementary and we're called to walk with both. Like complementary colors, when they come together in full intensity, they create white light. We're going to shine the way we need to shine when we realize God is big enough for both. But again, light is complex. And if you want your kid to learn more about light or they're just pestering you with questions about light, what do you, what do you have them do? Go to the source. Tell them go stare at the sun, right? Get out of my hair. I'm trying to make dinner. I'm trying to wash this shirt. Just go stare at the sun. No. <laughs> Some of you are like, you need to read more of those parenting books. But sometimes trying to see God's fullness is like staring at the sun. It's fruitless. It's foolish. You know, the glory of the sun overwhelms and destroys our sight. We have to use a filter. We have to uh, use technology to be able to get a fruitful glimpse. You know, Jesus is the glory and incomprehensible nature of God in the filter of human flesh. He's fully God. He's fully man. And not only do we have record of Jesus' life, and we have record of Jesus praying a lot, but he also taught the disciples and his followers how to pray. I want to turn to Matthew 6, verse 8, and we'll read the the next few verses. But it's Matthew 6, verse 8. It starts and it says, do not be like them. Speaking of the pagans who when they pray, they, they go on babbling. It says, do not be like them, for your father knows what you need before you ask him. This then is how you should pray. Our father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. How many of you have heard that prayer before? Right? The Our Father. But what always confused me and raised questions when I was a new believer and I started reading through the Gospels is, Jesus goes straight from saying that God already knows what I'm about to ask. He already knows what I need. And then he says, this then is why you should pray. God's sovereignty and our prayers. And the question is, why or or, or how? But the important takeaway that I've always taken from Jesus' words 
is that God is big enough for both. He's sovereign, and prayer is so effective that he encourages us to do it. And to choose one or the other becomes a false choice. It's taking what Jesus positioned as complementary and making them contradictory. Because God is sovereign, and yet prayer matters. And the point I want to drive home tonight that I want us to all go home with is don't let the effectiveness of human prayer cancel the power and sovereignty of God. But don't let the sovereignty of God cancel the power and effectiveness of prayer. The Bible shows us both. Jesus in this statement points to both. Again, Jesus says God is sovereign, and yet this is how you should pray. But then my second question reading that passage is, is why? If he already knows Why should I bring it to him? If he already knows and he's sovereign, why? You know, something that brings me peace in any season, no matter what's going on around me, is remembering that God is all-powerful, he's all-knowing, and he's all-loving. It's a pretty powerful trifecta to where I can trust God in every season, knowing that he knows all things, he can do all things, and he loves me. The question is, why would I want to mess with that? Why would I want to throw my wrench into that? trifecta and potentially screw anything up when God is sovereign and he already knows. And then the third question is, could I change him even if I tried? Because again, you see in the Bible verses like Malachi 3.6 where it says, I the Lord do not change. You see 1 Samuel 15.29 where it's said of God that he who is the glory of Israel will not lie nor will he change his mind for he is not human that he should change his mind. And again, this isn't just an Old Testament principle. We saw it in the New Testament where James says in chapter 1, verse 17, whatever is good and perfect is a gift coming down to us from God our Father who created all the lights of the heavens. He never changes or casts a shifting shadow. And in the same way that Jesus goes from point A of God's sovereignty to point B that we should pray, James goes from that to, again, in chapter 5 where he says the prayer of the righteous man is powerful and it's effective. But again, when you read the Bible, I ask, what do we affect exactly? How can God be unchanging and prayer still matter, as Jesus implies? How can he be big enough for both? And again, I'm not going to explain this so perfectly that we can all go home with a light bulb over our heads. But I want to look at two things that I think will encourage us to pray tonight. One is the character of God. Two is the character of man. And again, I'm going to fall short on the character of God a little bit trying to understand him as a human being. But we can look at the character of God, what the Bible tells us about him, including his sovereignty, and be encouraged to pray. Be encouraged that prayer matters. Again, in Matthew 6, 8, it says, Your father knows what you need before you ask him. This, then, is how you should pray, our father. See, Jesus doesn't present God's sovereignty as a negative, but as a positive motivation to pray. Similarly, in the book of Psalms, Psalm 139, David says before, a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. And yet David, his prayers, his psalms make up the core of our Bible. It echoes what is at the core of the Bible theologically that God is sovereign. He knows all things, has perfect control over all things, past, present, and future. And if God could be convinced to act in a way that he didn't originally intend to act, can he truly be sovereign in the truest definition of the word? But there are different kinds of portraits in the Bible depending on the author. If you read Revelation or you read the prophet Ezekiel, it's almost like they don't have words to put to what they're looking at. Like it's just too big to even describe. You read some of the descriptions in Ezekiel, I'm like, I I don't even know if I'm tracking with you, bro. I don't even know what you're talking about because God is that big when he was writing it. 
But then there are other surprisingly relatable expressions of God. Sometimes it's an expression of God in human terms known as anthropomorphism, you know, where it talks about God having a hand or a finger and, and, and a face. Or even elsewhere where he models things for us. For instance, in Genesis, you know, God is almighty and yet he rests. In Genesis, after the fall, he's, he's omnipresent, he's all present, and yet he asks Adam, hey, where are you? He's sovereign, yet multiple times in the Old Testament, again, it says he changes his mind. How is this possible? Well, since no human being can comprehend the point of view of an infinite, timeless God interacting with a material, time-bound people and planet, any attempt by a human and any attempt by myself to reconcile the changeless nature of God with the responsiveness of God throughout the Bible, it'll fall short. Certainly no attempt by me will satisfy us 100%. But I think Jesus, like those other anthropomorphic examples, uses the term father to help us. Except this is no anthropomorphism. It's reality in Scripture. It says in Ephesians that God adopts us into his family through the blood of Jesus Christ. He becomes our father. But you know what becomes problematic is we've got so many pictures of fathers and dads in our culture. When I say the word father and you think of our culture, who are some people that you think of? Movies, real people, characters, people in the news. Who are some fathers you think of? Atticus Finch. Who else? Denise. Homer Simpson. Yup. Other father figures, dads you, you know of or see on TV. Darth Vader. <laughs> Rick Grimes. Nice. Wayne. That was yours, Tyler. Peter Griffin. Yup. Peter Griffin. Homer Simpson. Darth Vader. A new inductee to the, the realm of fathers, Kanye West, right? All these different fathers, and some of these examples, they're comical. But, you know, maybe you've walked either without a father or with a father whose parenting was far from comical, maybe even harmful, maybe passive and permissive, maybe cold and authoritative. Maybe you've had multiple father figures. Maybe you had none at all. But God, the God we see in Scripture, is the good, good father that we sing of, that we can trust. He doesn't rule with an authoritarian iron fist. He rules with the heart of a father that responds in love. He doesn't change on a whim. He's bound by his love. God's sovereignty isn't that of an aloof monarch or this distant dictator. God's sovereignty is that of a loving paternal figure, one that has given us boundaries, one that's declared himself unchanging, but one that always hears because he's bound by love. He's a good Father. And the first thing we see about the character of God, our Heavenly Father, is that God is love. It's expressed again and again in the Bible. And in Hosea 11, verse 8, God says, My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. Did God, in fact, change? Did he simply move according to his unwavering and unchanging compassion? Well, one thing is for certain God's love and his compassion are unchanging. And when people repent, He responds in grace. You know, there was a revivalist, a minister named Charles Finney, who lived in the 19th century. He's been called by many the the father of modern revivalism. He said his confidence in prayer was rooted in God's unchanging character. This was a man who saw his fair share of repentance. He saw his fair share of salvations. He witnessed God's eternal qualities of love and mercy in action. 
When man prays for forgiveness, he sees a God bound to act in mercy and grace. You know, I'm not sure there's a greater incentive to pray than the fact that God is a loving Heavenly Father. The same way a a good father longs to spend time with his children, God longs to invest in his relationship with us. He opens the door through grace. He opens the door through our repentance, but prayer sparks that interaction with him. You know, yesterday, I had a full schedule. You know, in the morning, uh, I'm... I'm basically driving Steph everywhere. She had physical therapy. We drove to that. But I knew we had a meeting after that. And then after that, I'd been working all week because I was going to roll up to the Redskins preseason game with Wayne. So I'd been grinding. I stayed up super late the night before just to make sure I'd be able to, to do that. And then Wayne got a stomach bug. So that got canceled. We didn't go. I'm not salty. It was preseason. I told him postseason I'd let him be uh, disappointed. But preseason, I was like, whatever. We'll figure something out. So then my afternoon was wide open, and then on the way to physical therapy, my morning appointment got canceled. So I'm like, wow, my day is wide open. So we drive back to the house, and what do I do? Well, I'm a doer. You know, there's prayers, doers, and relators. Some people like to talk to people for two hours. I'm introverted. I'll pass out, right? Some people like to pray for two hours. I'm ADD. I'm good if I can get through 30 minutes, right? I'm a doer. So I get home, and I make a to-do list, and I start working and working some more. And then finally, just as I'm working, and I got worship music playing. Just feel God's voice. Not in the way that that's going. It wasn't like that. Like my phone didn't start talking. But just felt an impression of God's voice. Where he's like, what if I gifted you this free time so that you could spend it with me? What if I freed up your whole schedule so you could just have an afternoon to spend in my presence? You know, in the moment I was convicted, <laughs> I put my laptop down and I went upstairs, grabbed my guitar, and I just spent time in prayer, and I spent time in worship because I realized God wanted to spend time with me because he's a good, good heavenly father. You know, there's a heavenly father that longs for relationship with you, and one of the most direct avenues we have is through prayer. But when you talk about fathers, when you talk about sons, you might also think of another aspect of the character of God, our father, and that's that he's triune. means there's three persons in one, the trinity. Again, I'm not going to explain this mystery in a way that I can just drop the mic and walk away. We're going to understand the Trinity when we get to heaven and see it from eternity. But within the Bible, we understand how it relates to our prayer life. Again, God is our heavenly Father. Jesus walked in the flesh, and he prayed a lot. He, matter of fact, he interceded for us in some of the prayers that we have record of. And now it says in Romans 8 and it says in Hebrews 7 that he intercedes on our behalf before the throne of God. He's our advocate who intercedes for us. Similarly, in Romans 8, it also says that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. When we don't have the words to say, when we don't even know how to pray, that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us. So Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Within the very person of God, there's this seemingly built-in counsel, and there's a built-in role of prayer. You know, that should encourage us again to pray all the more, that God has come close to us in prayer. You know, when you realize that God is our Father, And that's his character. That should encourage us to pray all the more. And then when you start to consider the character of man, my character, the character of those who pray, you look at Paul's letters to the church, and you see his prayers for those churches. In Ephesians 1, Philippians 1, Colossians 1, Ephesians 3, he has all these prayers for these churches. And it contains zero appeals 
for a change in his friend's circumstances. Even though they were being persecuted, even though this was the early church, they were living in danger of persecution and hardship. Now, is that because he didn't think God could or would change their circumstance? Is that because he thought God was only concerned with changing them? I don't think so. You read the book of Acts, and this is the same Paul that prayed for healing and saw people healed. This is the same Paul that it says in the book of Acts, performed many miracles in Jesus' name. No doubt he believed James's statement in chapter 5, verse 16, that the prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. And no doubt he would have co-signed these verses on the screen that where Jesus said, I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. 1 John 5, 14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And then Psalm 34, 15, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are attentive to their cry. His ears are attentive to our cry. The whole course of the Old Testament, whole course of the Bible, whole course of history is sparked by a cry of Israelites in Egypt in slavery where God says that he heard their cry, remembered his covenant, and he was concerned with his people. He responded to the cry of the Israelites. Because their prayer, it was powerful, it was effective. But there's a key word in James 5.16 that we also see in Psalm 34.15, the righteous. And in a commentary I was reading in James, it referred to righteous as one committed to a relationship with God and doing his will. And you can slide in next to doing his will, praying his will. Because, again, we see in 1 John 5.14, this is the confidence we have in approaching God that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. God didn't create robots, created people with free will because he's a good father and he loves us. And for us to truly love him, we have to choose to love him. So he gave us free will as human beings. And free will means that we can cause real events, some which are outside of what God would do. Some of them causing brokenness as hurt people, hurt people, broken people, hurt people. And we can sometimes... See, it is odd yet that God would put prayer into the mix of causation. But again, he didn't create robots, nor does he want our prayer life to be robotic or a bunch of robotic responses. Does this mean all this talk of righteousness that God doesn't reply to the prayers of the lost? No. Again, repentance. When we repent, God's hears, God hears and he shows grace. But it, it does mean that he's not like a genie where he just says yes to everything. And thank goodness, right? You think of Midas, the old myth where he wished that everything he touched would turn to gold and it kills his daughter and almost kills him through starvation. You know, sometimes we don't need a permissive God. We need the God who can be firm, that says no. And we realize like our fathers on earth, sometimes he's acting out of wisdom. Sometimes that no is actually the best thing for us. That's why God wants to transform our hearts, thereby, thereby transforming our will. Prayer is one of those steps. You look at how Jesus finished his prayer in the garden before he went to the cross. Not my will, but your will be done. Not my will, but your will. If Jesus, God in the flesh, said that, how much more do we need to confess that in our prayers? Not, not my will, but your will be done, God. Wouldn't we love to hear that from our, our kids when they think they know best? When we're at the grocery store toy store and they, they just want that toy and they ask and you say no and they ask and you say no, wouldn't you wish that after like the second time saying no, they'd say, all right, not my will, but your will be done. 
Or when they grow up and they're teenagers and they're like, can I get the car? And they ask mom and she says no. They ask dad and he says no. And they just go back and forth and they complain and they, they moan. Wouldn't you just love it if they just said, not my will, but your will be done, right? You know, the same way a good father encourages development in his children observes development in his children and tries to bring out development in his children. God wants the same in us, his children. God's goal is to change us from the inside out, starting with our will and starting with our heart. You know, Titus, the boy Steph and I are adopting, he's currently on the other side of the world. Um, He's in India. And we got a video this week of Titus. And we got to watch that, probably watched it a hundred times over and over again. And uh, we just celebrated, you know, what we saw in the video. Like in the video, He's about nine months, maybe 10 months now. He rolls over and he gets on his hands and knees and he looks at the camera like, hey, look what I'm doing. So we got super excited. We're seeing how he's developing, but that's the only video we're probably going to get for a while. But we do get measurements of his height, of his weight, of his head circumference. It, It keeps track of his development. And you know, they keep track of that in orphanages because unfortunately development falls behind in orphanages. For every year that a kid spends in one of these orphanages, they can lose up to four months of development. And that just adds on year after year to where they can be years behind in their development. You know, this is a rabbit trail, but if, if you're spiritually orphaned tonight where you don't have a home, you're disconnected from the church, you're detached from a family of faith, don't live a life of stunted development. Find a a church home where there's a wealth of perspective, where there's a wealth of wisdom, where there's a wealth of faith that can challenge you, grow you, and develop you. It might not be here, but God has it somewhere for you where you can take root and grow and see fruit in your life. But again, that's a rabbit trail to bring it back to prayer. You know, God shapes us when we pray, just like Jesus that out of a righteous appetite for God's will to be done in and through us, He said, Hey, not my will but your will be done. One of the ways God works this in us is through the Holy Spirit in us. You know, uh, if I could recommend any book on prayer, my favorite book on prayer is called Prayer by Philip Yancey. This is a passage from that. Just speaking to the Holy Spirit's role in our prayers. He says, I know Christians who yearn for God's older style of a power worker who topples pharaohs, flattens Jericho's walls, and scorches the priests of Baal. I do not. I believe the kingdom now advances through grace and freedom, God's goal all along. I accept Jesus' assurance that his departure from earth represents progress by opening a door for the counselor to enter. We know how counselors work, not by giving orders and imposing changes through external force. A good counselor works on the inside, bringing to the surface dormant health. For a relationship between such unequal partners, prayer provides an ideal medium. Prayer is cooperation with God, a consent that opens the way for grace to work. Most of the time, the counselor communicates subtly, feeding ideas into my mind, bringing to awareness a caustic comment I just made, or inspiring me to choose better than I would have done otherwise, or shedding light on the hidden dangers of temptation, or sensitizing me to another's needs. God's spirit whispers rather than shouts and brings peace, not turmoil. Although such a partnership with God may lack the drama of the bargaining sessions with Abraham or with Moses, the advance in intimacy is striking. The partnership binds so tight that it becomes hard to distinguish who is doing what, God or the human partner. God has come that close. Again, as he says in this passage, Jesus said himself that it was better for him to leave that the Holy Spirit, who he calls the counselor, could come. 
because there's such an intimacy in that. And to those righteous believers dedicated to his will, he dedicated the care of the church. We'll talk about some of this next week, but you look at that and you think, could, couldn't Jesus have just set up something that did the work of the church? Like, you know, we're called to feed the hungry. Jesus multiplied loaves and fishes. Why couldn't he have just multiplied food, multiplied enough Chick-fil-A to where it could feed everybody on the planet and we'd have enough for Sundays. So we don't have to worry when they're not open. We just have a resource. Or he could have called down manna like he did in the Old Testament for every person on the planet. Why didn't he do that to solve world hunger? Or all the other things the church is called to, to, to house the, the, the homeless and to visit those in prison or to heal those that are sick. Why didn't he do that? Could he have done that? Maybe, but he didn't. He actually said it would be better for him to leave and the Holy Spirit to come and fuel us to do that. Because in his character, he cares about our character. He cares about our development, cares about our heart, cares about our will. You know, Abraham Heschel, the Jewish theologian, he said, the universe is done. The greater masterpiece still undone, still in the process of being created, is history. For accomplishing his grand design, God needs the help of man. Jacques, I'm going to go with Olo. He's a modern French philosopher. I'm not going to pretend I know how to say that. He said, prayer holds together the shattered fragments of creation. It makes history possible. And he said, prayer holds together the shattered fragments of the creation. It makes history possible. You know, again, you look at the book of Acts. You look at those prayers that led up to Pentecost, those prayers that were prayed at Pentecost, and how that set the course for the church and the history of the world and the history of the church that we know. You know, our prayers, they can set the course of this church. They can set the course of the church as we appeal to God, our Heavenly Father. You know, if I could just have the worship team come up and we begin to wind up tonight. Just want to tell you, you know, God plans his eternal purpose around our prayers. We may not know the plan, but our prayers are a part of it. We might not know how all that works, but we know that even in God's sovereignty, Jesus encourages us to pray. You know, is the will of God, is the plan of God, is it slowed down by incorporating our prayers and him using that? Maybe. But again, one day, it's going to be me and Titus. He'll probably still be learning how to walk. Maybe he'll be getting his sea legs, you know, getting those removed, learning how to walk. And if I'm walking next to him and I'm holding his hand, you know, he's going to be going slower than me, especially if he's still learning. And I'm not going to look down at him and say, you dummy, <laughs> or rebuke him or make fun of him and belittle him. I'm not going to rip him up by his arm and just carry him. No, because that moment is not about me. It's about equipping him. You know, God, again, in his character, as a loving father, he gave us free will. And one of his biggest acts of love is transforming our heart and our will to walk in his. It's quite possible that it does slow his pace, but it's not out of a drudgery. It's out of a joy. When I walk next to Titus and he's learning how to walk, it's not going to be a drudgery. It's going to be a joy because hopefully I'll be a good father. And in a similar way, before I ever walk next to Titus, there's going to be the first time I hold him. And let's be serious. He's probably not going to run to me. Probably going to be the first white person he's, he's ever seen. Might run the other way. <laughs> probably not going to run into my arms out of free will. But when I finally get to hold him, he might say a couple words, but I'm not going to even know what he's saying. I might say a couple words in English, but he wouldn't know what I was saying if I did. But hopefully it'll be one of the first of many times that he learns to approach me 
crawl into my lap, spend time with me. Not because he completely understands me and why I say yes and why I say no, but because he knows me bit by bit more and more as his loving father. And even later on, when he learns English, he might come and crawl on my lap and talk gibberish about octonauts or some random TV show I know nothing about. But the key for me will become, will be the fact that he's coming to share his heart, share his love of his own free will. God loves us the same way. Now, do I totally understand how Matthew 6 and those verses in James play out, how God can be sovereign and unchanging and yet affected by prayer? No, I simply know that the Bible shows me he's big enough for both. Again, don't let the sovereignty of God cancel out the power and effectiveness of prayer. And don't let the effectiveness of prayer cancel out the love, the power, and the sovereignty of God. Again, as we talk about God's sovereignty, it does bring me peace because I know he's loving, I know he's almighty, and I know he knows all things. And the fact that he knows what I need before I ever ask it will always mean this to me in prayer that I don't have to convince him to care. I don't have to convince him that this is actually a legitimate need. I can get right to the point. Because just as a good father always gives his children his ear, God does the same. You know, if we could stand, we're gonna go into worship. But I just want in this moment, just to have a moment where we can respond. As we stand, as we get ready to sing. Because I know for a lot of us, you might get to that point I don't know what it is for you, but I feel like we've all got something where it takes persistent prayer, where it feels like God is saying no again and again and again, and eventually we're just like, well, God, I'm just gonna stop praying. If it happens, it happens. If it happens, it's your will. If it doesn't, it's not. But then we see parables like in Luke 18 of the persistent widow, where it says the judge didn't even, wasn't even a loving guy, but she was persistent enough. She kept asking, she kept seeking, she kept knocking, and finally his heart was moved. And that parable, it says God is so much more loving than that judge. How much more should we be persistent and keep asking? So again, I don't know what it is for you, but if you've got something in your heart where you've been praying again and again and again, you haven't seen the fruit, maybe it's almost time to throw up your hands and say, well, if it happens, it happens but I'm certainly done praying about it. You're sovereign, you're good, you know. If you're at that point, you're frustrated, you're discouraged, then just lift your hands because I want to pray for you. My own hand is in the air. Lord God, you see us, you know us, you love us. And God, you yourself said, ask, it'll be answered. Seek, knock. God, how much more do you love us? God, in those times where we've been praying for bread and it feels like we keep getting rocks, God, we know that you're a good father, that you give good gifts, and you never change. Your love for us never changes. God, you love it when things drive us into your presence, whether it's a hurt and a need or just a day where everything that was scheduled gets wiped out. God, I pray that we would be committed to persistent prayer realizing that you're a good, good father. God, that you hear us, that you care. God, that we can always run to you. We can always run to your presence. God, we thank you for the blood of Jesus Christ that makes that possible. Where we can be adopted into the family of faith, where when you see us, you see his righteousness, not our sin. You know what? Maybe you're also here. You've never seen God as your father. 
You've never accepted him as Lord and Savior because your human father, the father you know, didn't set the best example. Again, whether he was permissive and passive, maybe completely out of the picture or authoritarian and harsh, where your picture of God as a father is just so distorted that you've never given your life to him or you've never even realized that he's a good, good father. You know, the story of the prodigal son, that, that son returns home ready to just be like, Dad, I'll be your servant if you'll just let me back in the home. But that father sees the son returning and runs to him, embraces him, and welcomes him back into the family. If you've never felt that embrace of God's your heavenly father, then as we go back into this song and we sing this, I'm going to be right here. I'd love to pray for you. But come on, let's remember, God is good. He's sovereign, but he loves our prayer. Our prayer is powerful and effective. As we sing these words, make them your prayer. As you read verses this week daily, you go through your devotions, make those verses your prayer. It's powerful, it's effective, and God loves to hear from us. Let's speak to him even now through this song.